This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thanks for joining me for episode 9 of The Murder of My Family. I need to warn you up front that although every murder case I've covered to this point is uniquely awful for the victims and their families, this episode deals with an especially difficult subject that just may be too hard for some listeners to hear. It deals with the unsolved murder of a three-year-old child named Rachel Runyon. As a parent myself, I can fully understand one's reluctance to listen to this episode. But I also feel it's important to share this story, especially because this episode will air one day before the 36-year anniversary of Rachel's murder. If you feel that you need to hit stop and abandon this episode, now's the time to do it. No hard feelings. If you're ready to dive into one of the most heartbreaking cases I've ever dug into, let's move forward. I was 17 years old in 1989. And unlike most teenagers my age, I was totally obsessed with the true crime television show Unsolved Mysteries. I was fascinated by the mysteries they presented each week, but it was on November 8th of that year when I watched an episode of the show that taught me that evil truly did exist in this world. That's when I first learned about the Rachel Runyon case, and it left an indelible impression on me. On August 26th, 1982, Three-year-old Rachel Runyon played outside of her house, only 15 feet away from where her mother Elaine prepared lunch. Rachel, along with her two older brothers, were lucky enough to live right next to a school and playground in the town of Sunset, Utah. It wasn't long before a man approached the group of kids and began offering them ice cream and bubblegum. The man was able to gain Rachel's trust and, without warning, grabbed the innocent three-year-old and threw her into his car before speeding away. Rachel's young brothers watched helplessly. The boys immediately ran into their house and told their mother what had happened, and horrified, Elaine called police. When the police arrived, they quickly started the search for little Rachel. The only eyewitnesses, Rachel's own brothers, were able to give a detailed description of the man that had taken Rachel and of the car that he drove. They described to police that the man was thin, about six feet tall, had a mustache, and was African-American. They felt he was possibly in his late 20s or early 30s. The car he drove was a blue mid-sized car with distinct wood grain panels on the sides. Despite the descriptions of the man in his car, no leads were generated, and the immediate search revealed no signs of Rachel. With such specific details about the abductor and his car, in an area that had an African-American population of less than 2%, it was frustrating that a suspect wasn't quickly identified. Rachel's family and her community were devastated that something like this could happen there, and all they could do was wait and hope that Rachel would be found quickly. Unfortunately, hours turned to days, and days to weeks, with no answer and no signs of Rachel. Then, on September 19, 1982, 24 days after Rachel was abducted, a family that was on a picnic in a secluded area about 20 miles from where Rachel was abducted spotted what appeared to be a doll alongside a creek. They looked closer and discovered what they had seen wasn't a doll, but instead was the lifeless body of a child. Police responded and confirmed that it was the body of Rachel Runyon. The beautiful little blonde-haired Rachel was nude and hogtied. Brush was haphazardly used to try and hide her body. 
It seems unclear as to whether Rachel was sexually assaulted, and police haven't released all of the details about the crime itself. Investigators worked leads in the case and developed persons of interest, but no arrests were made, and the case went cold leaving Rachel's family devastated. It was in 1989 when Unsolved Mysteries did the episode about Rachel's case, once again bringing attention to the case that it desperately needed. In the episode, some disturbing things were revealed to the audience, including a police theory that Rachel may have been kidnapped and murdered for the purposes of producing a snuff film. Another possible clue that was revealed in the episode was that there was a message found in the bathroom of a business in the Sunset, Utah area. The message scrawled on the bathroom stall read, Beware, I'm still at large, I killed the little Runyon girl. Remember, beware. The sinister note was also accompanied by the drawing of an inverted cross and the number 666, leading some investigators to think that the murder of Rachel Runyon may have been related to satanic rituals or cold activity. But there was nothing solid to connect this writing to Rachel's case, and it may have been nothing more than a cruel joke. It wasn't until 2011 when police got what they thought might be a big break in the case. A top suspect in the running case was arrested in Pennsylvania following an Amber Alert. The subject of the alert had taken his five-month-old son without permission after assaulting his girlfriend. Police were able to locate the man and his son, and luckily the child was not harmed. I won't name the suspect, but there are plenty of details about him online, and he looks almost identical to the description of Rachel's abductor. He had lived in the Sunset, Utah area around the time of Rachel's murder, and a relative of his owned a car that closely matched the one that the abductor was seen driving away in. Police have stated that there is not enough evidence to charge this man in Rachel's murder. I hope that one day there is enough to make an arrest in Rachel's case, whether it's this suspect or another. It's been 36 years since Rachel Runyon's murder, far too long for her family to wait for justice. If there's reason for hope in this case, it's that we've seen other high-profile cold cases solved recently. Again, police have been tight-lipped about what evidence such as DNA that they might be holding onto in Rachel's case. We can only hope that the monster that did this will be identified. Although the Rachel Runyon abduction and murder was a horrible crime, there have been some positive things that have resulted from it. Rachel's mother Elaine became a staunch advocate for missing children. She was instrumental in the creation of the Missing Children of Utah organization. As a reminder to always think of child safety and as an honor to Rachel's memory, Utah Representative Steve Handy sponsored legislation in recent years that would make August 26th Rachel Runyon Missing and Exploited Children Day in Utah. Although Rachel's been gone for 36 years, her memory lives on and her case is a reminder to us all to keep our children close and be wary of the monsters that live among us. Elaine Runyon joined me to discuss Rachel's case in what turned out to be an emotional discussion for both of us, and one that for me has been the toughest interview I've had to do so far. I just want to thank you very much, Elaine, for joining me to discuss Rachel's case. Oh, you're welcome. And, you know, we talked a little bit by phone the other day, and I think I relayed to you how, how much this case affected me personally. It's one of the most, you know, heartbreaking cases that I've ever read about or um, researched. 
So I can't imagine how you've felt over the years. But you've turned your tragedy into something positive, and, and we'll definitely talk about that uh, in a little bit. Um, if you can, can you take us back to that day, August 26th, 1982, and just tell us in your own words what happened that day? Oh, yes. I've never forgotten a minute of that day. It was a very difficult day. I was just being mama, cooking lunch, making sloppy joes. And the kids wanted to go outside my backyard fence, and there's a big toy right there, literally like our toy, even though it belonged to the schools. It was 15 feet from my backyard fence. So they had never got to go over there by themselves, only with me or daddy. And we hadn't lived there that long. And so it was a fun thing to do. But they just kept begging and seeing how happy it would make them. I gave in, you know, even though I was cooking their lunch. I said, yes, but you got to come when I call. And they scampered off, just opened the little gate from our backyard, went over, and they were right there. So I just kept cooking lunch, and I didn't feel good about it. My stomach was nervous because I never let them go over there by themselves. And so I called each child by name. I said, Justin, Rachel, Nathan, and each one answered. So I'm like, okay, they're okay. I'm just being too worried for nothing and then I go stir the sloppy joe some more and then I go over to the window again and they're at the other side of the park and it's about a football field away and I'm like what are they doing over there so I'm calling out you know Justin bring everyone home you know kind of like what are you doing over there and he comes running and he comes in and walks up the steps to the kitchen and he's like mommy I have some real bad news and I said what and he said Rachel's in a car I go what car he says a blue car I said whose car and he said a black man's and I'm like I fell to my knees and I said Justin he'll kill her he'll kill her it just sounded bad and that was my instant reaction and it, it was just absolutely horrifying. And so he said he was going to take us to Bobco's for ice cream. And um, so I put the kids in the vehicle and we ran over. And I thought, oh, my gosh, how do I ask? Did a black man come in with my little girl, a little blonde, blue-eyed, you know, three-year-old little girl? I, I just couldn't even hardly say those words because I knew what it sounded like. And even before I asked, I knew they'd say no because you would remember that. You know, it's an odd combination in 1982. So then we got back in the Land Cruiser, ran back home, and I got on the phone, called my husband at work, and I just said, you know, it's Rachel. She's been kidnapped. And he says, you know, call the police. I'm coming home right now. And the police pulled up five minutes later. How old were your other 
children at that time, or how old were all the five, children? Five years old and 18 months. Wow. And, and they, they were always together, always. Yeah, and you always had an eye on them. You, they're 15 feet away. You know, th you think that that's a, a pretty reasonably safe distance. Uh, yeah, and even though I never let them go there, and all my neighbors said, you never let them even play out front you know, without you, and and you're just so careful, and they never are walking up and down the street. You take them to a friend's house, and you pick them up. I'm like, I know. I was really, really careful, and people did not expect this to happen to me. There were other people's little kids that ran around in their underwear in the streets, you know, and not my kids. No way. And then this happened, so it was pretty shocking to everyone. What is what goes through a per, you know a person's mind in your situation during that time? I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine, you know, as a parent. What do you think about in that circumstance? Well, for me, I was horrified. My stomach was sick, and to carry it out, I mean, we'll get into that, but I couldn't eat, I couldn't sleep, I was just frightened for her and whatever her surroundings were and if she was cold if she needed food it's a, so helpless and it just incapacitates you it was horrible I, I, I don't like to go back there in that thinking because it's, it's really painful and you know, in this situation, at least there were witnesses that were able to give some information to the police to help them, you know, at, you know, your children were able to provide some details. Yeah. Were, were you hoping or thinking that there might be a quick resolution that they might find her right away since they had so, such good, accurate, you know, detailed information to go on? Yeah. I mean, I, I was, I was hopeful, but I wasn't going to be happy till I had her in my arms and, it's not over till it's over, and so they had roadblocks up within 20 minutes, and just the news was out there, and I just thought, okay, they're gonna find my little girl, and it's all the police will take care of it. I didn't know that it was the beginning of a long, long career of missing children and heartache and pain you know and then a month later you, you've got all that time going by and i you know again i can't even imagine what you went through for for that month but then you get the news that they found her body how did you handle that i mean it's yeah i can only imagine i, I say that because i i can't say you know you know, i'm not in your shoes and and i don't think anybody can be in your shoes and know what goes through your mind but what happens in that situation well after 24 days um the mayor and detective police showed up at my house one evening and they came to break the news that a family out for a sunday drive up trapper's loop had you know went down to a little spring little river and um <clears throat> they moved some shrubbery and 
a doll came up, and they were running back to their family vehicle saying they had found a doll, and the parents went down, and lo and behold, it was it was my doll. And so it was very sad. I, oddly enough, still had hope, you know. When they said body, does that mean the, they're dead? They kept saying they found a small child's body. So I'm naive enough at, what, 26, 27 years old to think it, there was still hope. I still had hope. And then I learned later than the 10 o'clock news broke and we got the story this was a small uh, not a, a large community I, I take it so I assume this sort of shocked you know people in your in your town oh yeah well even though it's a small community Davis County is one of the largest counties in Utah and being such a high-profile case that also went national and flyers were being made, translated in languages to go around the world. You know, it's hard to shut down the search once we had so many things going every day for 24 days, right? The news just kept getting bigger and bigger, and we went to New York to be on CNN and the Today Show and share all our stories to keep the word out and now we have the answer that we had been hoping we wouldn't have but at the same time we were grateful because we know how hard we'd been searching every single day and the fact that she was found in a mountain canyon stream is sheer miracle so we also knew a miracle was happening compared to the choices we had ahead of us. And do you think, and, you know, I don't know how to phrase this, but is sometimes not having an answer, do you think that would be more difficult than, than having an answer, than, even if it's a bad one? If she, if she yes. was never found, would that have been any worse? No. Or... I totally believe it was a blessing she was found. And I, I tell you, the magnitude of the horrendous crime it is when you are thanking God that you have your baby back and she's dead. Does that give you a taste of how horrible the pain is? Think about that. Yeah, I I can't even I can't even put yeah. myself in your shoes. Yeah. Um, so we were just so grateful so grateful and so blessed that we were able to give her a proper farewell and be able to give her a funeral and be able to put her body to rest and that we did not have to search the rest of our lives because if we kept searching and searching, it didn't matter. She was already dead. She was already hidden in a mountain canyon stream. We would have never found her if too much time went by. We had flooding that fall, and we just know how blessed we are that she was found. Now, you spoke a little bit about the national attention that her case got. You know, I first mm -hmm. heard about her case on Unsolved Mysteries um, 
when that mm -hmm. came out in 1989. And some of the things they talked about in that, you know, in that episode were, were just, you know, I was 17 at the time. I didn't have any kids. I was still in school myself, but you know, they talked about Satanism or that she may have been killed in a snuff film. And I, I didn't even know what some of that stuff was at the time. And it was just so frightening, you know, did that make things even worse when, when you heard details like that? It was weird. And I just have a strong belief that she was with Heavenly Father and that I didn't put a lot of stock into that at all. I mean, if there was truth to it, I was willing to get to the bottom of it. But we had no facts. We just had that they cut out, well, excuse me, they didn't cut out. At this time, they put, you know, I know who uh, murdered the Rachel Runyon girl and did an upside-down cross with a 666 on it. And the police cut that wall out and, of course, re-drywalled it and kept that as evidence. And they showed that, and they showed that there was black flowers on the grave. Well, was it roses that died? You know what I'm saying? I, I'm just kind of practical that way. And we never did find a snuff film. And I didn't know what that was either. I had to have that explained to me, you know, that they make a film while, you know, having sex with a child and killing them. Never heard of such a thing. It, at the time when I saw this episode, I, I, again, I had never heard of it either. And it, when I realized what it was, I was just, it was the first time as a young adult that I knew there were evil, really evil people in this world. And Rachel's case became embedded in me at that point in my mind. And I knew one day if I had kids, I would be scared to even let them out of the house. Just be, yep. you know because of Rachel's case. I mean, she's fifteen feet away from you with with people, and and that still didn't stop them. And that's, I think that's a cautionary thing of you you don't want to let them you know out of your sight because of that, but you also want to give them some kind of freedom. How do you what would you say to people like me that are just so scared of stuff like Rachel's case? How do you draw the line between letting them? live their lives versus being afraid something's going to happen to them? Well, you have to have a balance and I guess age appropriate type of thing. And just, they can't live in a bubble. I mean, you know, do you think I wish for a minute that I hadn't let them go over there? I wish I could change that. But I can't, so what am I supposed to do, you know? Do I have to shoot myself? No. I put every ounce of energy into trying to, you know, find my child and get her back. And, and it was the most horrible thing, but there was no way around it. <laughs> I had to go through it. And those kids need to be able to play, but they can't play like I did. We would go play in the fields and out at the sewer drains and you know we just had to be home by dinner time you know when we heard the whistle blow we would no more let our kids do that now as the man in the moon 
right? Yeah, it's a it's a different world. It's a different world, but even at 15 feet from my backyard fence, I still was very careful. You know, I mean, the people that knew me and lived around me and, you know, people were coming into my home going, how is it this clean at a minute's notice? Well, that's, I kept my house. I took care of things. I watched my kids. I didn't know all this was going to happen. I didn't have my house all clean just in case, you know, the media came over. And everyone's like, my house would never look like this at a minute's notice. And I'm like, well, I'm very conscientious. And they knew that. And they cannot believe it even happened to our family. But the fact that it did made everyone more aware that if it could happen to me, it could happen to them. And so everyone became more conscientious because they just knew how careful I was. And I'd go grocery shopping and all three kids would be in the cart and trying to fit the food in between. I mean, John Walsh, their son was right shopping with the mom and he just was off over at another section and before you knew it, he was gone and found with his head amputated you know yeah and it's, it's it's scary as a parent it's that feeling when you turn around for a second to look at something on a shelf and then you turn back around and your child's gone and you you feel that feeling in your heart that adrenaline and then you usually hear them or see them out of the corner of your eye and then you know mm-hmm. i can only imagine that feeling of, of not seeing Rachel again. Um, how did this affect your other children? How did they handle it? Because they were, you know, there, when, you know, when the man took her. How have they been over the years in dealing with it? Well, it's been rough. Um, you know, I think it it affects each one of us a different way. Like, each of our family members took a different scar And mine was I was fighting to save the world and save all the children because where were the mothers about kidnapping when this happened? I didn't know anything about such horrible things. Not at all. And so I turned into a crusader, and I don't know, my husband at the time almost seemed like he tried to hide from the limelight because you don't want to be in it, but we knew publicity was the only way to get our child back, to get the word out, because we knew we couldn't be everywhere, and she could have been taken for to cross borders, a rich family to, you know, adopt her out of the country. We didn't know. We had to try everything we could. My sons had different issues. Um my youngest son, who was 18 months when she got taken, was like, he became somewhat of a celebrity. Everyone's, oh, my goodness, you're Rachel's brother? And so he kind of had that kind of status. And my other son, uh, the one that did the composite and, you know, went under hypnotism hypnotism, and saw the guy and talked to the guy, 
and tried to give us most of the information. He had a lot of trouble. Um, he took on saving people. Like I know of eight lives he has saved, whether it was in a drowning or uh, someone having a heart attack while he was on an Eagle Scout 50-miler. Um, so many stories, me, you know, in a snowmobiling mishap in the middle of nowhere. You know, he he got stuck, I got stuck, and he had to crawl half a mile to find me. You know, he was ready to build an igloo and keep us in there for the night till help could come. Like, he's just spent his whole life helping people like that. He just feels like he wishes he could have saved his sister. But he went to some uh, landmark courses and learned that he was five years old. He did everything a five-year-old knew to do. He came and told his mother and got standing ovation for that, by the way, for him to come to that conclusion. I was five. I didn't do anything wrong, you know? And what he did do was, was good in providing so much information, the sketch, the details about the car, um, and police have suspects in this case. You know, there's yeah. a very there's a very good one that, you know, I think you and I may be in agreement on, could be the person mm -hmm. that did this. And unfortunately, police don't have enough to arrest him. How terrible is that to know that the person that did this might be right out there under police, you know, the police's nose, but they just can't arrest him and he's been living his life for the rest of these years? It's really frustrating, and I've gotten into watching, you know, investigation, discovery, and watching those kind of shows, and they're like, we don't have enough evidence, we can't arrest, and you know straight up that that guy's guilty, or that person is guilty, or that girl, and there's nothing they can do, and they have to keep... And I think of all the loopholes and everything they go through or DNA or exhuming the bodies or just going over everything, evidence again and again. And it's it's hard. And if they would just confess, you know, but they've talked to him and he denies it, you and know. If, if you could talk directly to you know, if he could hear your voice and you could talk to the person that did this to Rachel, what would you say to him? Oh, it's really sad. I'd say, how could you, how could you do this? How could you hurt that sweet little child that never heard a fly? Was she screaming? Did she want her parents? She must have been frightened out of her mind. How did how did you let her be so sad? You know, it's just it's a sad sad story. I'm sorry to uh, to bring that up too. Um, <clears throat> that's getting me choked up too. <clears throat> mm -hmm. I have a seven year old and a two year old, so um, I I know that, that feeling of of wanting to protect your children at that age uh, so let's let's 
turn to something that's positive, uh, that's something good that came out of this, was you're advocating the things you've done to help other children stay safe and and uh, help keep bad people from doing stuff like this. Well, mostly mine has been an awareness, like keeping keeping Rachel's story out there that this does happen to good people and 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 to people that you know are careful that have families that have homes that aren't drug addicts that you know we're just just good people we just had a horrible thing happen because some bad person entered our territory and you know took a chance and I guess got away with it so far but he won't get away with it forever, you know. But I I just felt like fighting back. So I started with legislation, whether it was House Bill 209, the Comprehensive Child Kidnapping and Sexual Abuse Act, or the Missing Children's Act, which we passed nationally and then we passed statewide. And so they sync with each other, and you can put, you know, the kids in the database or the perpetrators and match fingerprints and we're always doing something and and uh, we've had kids safety fairs and we've done fingerprinting and I've been involved with people like Sam's Club that if I raise a thousand they match a thousand um, there's just some great people out there that are really into wanting to help and what can they do to help and just like now um, I worked with Representative Steve Handy and we've got the Rachel Runyon and Missing and Exploited Children's Day passed and it's August 26th every year and it's for the state of Utah and our goal was to not only honor Rachel but to keep the word and the education out about missing children that this does happen and that we do need to be careful and we need to keep that awareness out there to the public so they don't become complacent and so i have an event on saturday the 25th of august to um bring in some keynote you know speakers and ed smart's joining us and the chief of police over my daughter's case um um the legislator rep handy and I've got just the mayor and Paul Murphy the former Amber Alert coordinator for the state of Utah so we've got some neat people coming and we're gonna just get educated again and you've got to keep it in front of people and so that's another way I do it but I've spoken at the colleges and done kids safety at the schools and been involved with rad kids and just all angles of child safety it's been a i guess 36 year journey i I can only say thank you for what you're doing to help other kids you know across (laughs) the country um you know hopefully the work that you've done has has gone a long way to making kids safer and and you know, keeping other parents from having to go through the horrible thing that you went through. 
And you mentioned the anniversary and the stuff you're doing on Saturday the 25th, and that's when this episode is going to air. Um, mm-hmm. So we will put that out there on social media and and let people know that it is the anniversary and that you're doing some some special stuff, you know, to honor right. Rachel at that time. Um, if there's somebody out there listening that wants to help some way in in Rachel's case, whether it's spreading awareness or learning more about it or calling in a tip, um, what advice can can you give them? Where should they go? Who should they contact? Well, I have a website, and it's called uh, it's a Facebook page called Justice for Rachel Runyon, and you can find it really easy. It's the only one. And I have leads on there all the time, and I keep those leads, uh, you know, with me, read them, and send them to the police. And some are very interesting, and, you know, you never know. And I just thought, well, this might be an avenue where people can connect. And and a lot of people just share their respect or their honor for Rachel. Sometimes there's leads. Sometimes they have their own stories. One guy thought it was his dad. Now, he's the that guy's about what fifty, and he thought it was his dad. So I gave all that information to the police, and I've had to put it in their hands. You know, I'm not a detective. I have my job, and I guess that's been educating and keeping awareness to the public and. They have their job, and that's their expertise, and I I still pray it'll be solved. You know, they are solving 40-year-old cases. Yeah, so it's important to keep the information coming in and the tips coming in. If somebody thinks they know something in your area, yeah. you should definitely come forward. Yeah, and so don't hesitate to reach out. We'd really appreciate that. And then just one last thing. If, if there's somebody out there listening that's a parent and, you know, God forbid they find themselves going through what you went through, what advice would you give them? Oh, my goodness. That's kind of a tough one. You're, and I don't know. I just tell them, you know, one, your experience in the color that nobody knows and you can't blame yourself. It's it's natural to blame ourselves because we don't know who took them. We don't know where they are. We don't know. Um, so we blame ourselves. We say, I shouldn't have let him play. I was right here, but I shouldn't have let him play. My stomach, my gut told me, you know, no, you can't go. But I didn't want to be negative mommy either. And so I gave in and then it's easy to say, look at the price I have to pay. So I just say, you know, do the best you can. And if this does happen to you, stay strong because it's going to be a tough, rough journey. Most marriages don't make it past two years because there's so much pain and everyone blaming everybody. And it's rough. So you just have to... You know, be strong for each other and, you know. Well, I, I just want to thank you, Elena. I know it wasn't easy and I, you know, I'm sorry to have, uh, bring up all those feelings that you have. Uh, but I really appreciate you sharing 
uh, your story and Rachel's story with us. And, you know, I hope that we can spread the word. And I hope that one day we are getting news that her killer has been captured. Yeah, that would be great. Well, thank you for your caring and your concern. And uh, hope we can get this solved still. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts so that the show can continue to reach new listeners. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit TheMurderOfMyFamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderInMyFam or by searching for The Murder of My Family podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon, it's always appreciated, and you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash the murder of my family. If you prefer to, you can also support the show through a PayPal donation by visiting paypal.me forward slash the murder of my family. In each episode, I'll give shout outs to any new supporters. And thanks to all of the supporters that generously donate and keep the podcast going. Your support is appreciated and helps the show grow and improve. Until next time, remember... Every murder victim means something to somebody. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information.